I had my mom here for like eight days. I had a Portuguese exam to try to get my passport. That was interesting. It was at the college and I, uh, I think I passed. You only need 55% to pass. But if I did, it wasn't by much. The oral exam where you're speaking to a random person who is also trying to get credit for the test was tough. I was speaking to this Romanian woman who was definitely better than me, but she wasn't great and she was hard to understand. And I don't know. I think I didn't do very well on it. It was kind of embarrassing. And then I think I did all right on the written part, although a friend of mine happened to be taking the test the same day as me and he lived in Brazil. There was, there was a section where you have to like, you hear like a snippet of conversation between two people and you have to identify like what venue it's in. Like, is it taxi cabs at the airport? Is it the pharmacy? And there were two that are about clothing and one was like a laundromat or a dry cleaner and one was a clothing shop. And I had it right and then I thought about it and then I switched it because I heard like different kinds of clothing items. And then I asked him afterwards, I was like, was the first one the laundromat? I switched it to the laundromat. He said, no, 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 it was the clothing shop. So I, I screwed that up, but pretty sure I got those other ones right. And who knows? It's not going to be, as I said, it's not going to be by a lot if I do pass. I think I passed. I give myself like a 75, 80% chance that I passed, but the oral exam was, it wasn't just bad. It was embarrassingly bad. Like I it was supposed to be six minutes. It was like one minute and I didn't even do as well as I should have. Like I can speak a little bit. I have trouble understanding. That's the hardest part. But because I couldn't understand, I didn't really know what to say. It was, it was tough, but kind of funny. It's kind of an absurd experience getting in the Portuguese government, pass your exam to get your citizenship test. Again, I think I passed, but not by much. So, but basically what I'm trying to say is I had a lot of shit going on that was out of my normal routine. And we had just come back from the summer and traveled to Spain and France and the US. And so I just haven't been back in my routine until really this week. This is the first week I've just had like my full routine. And I went to the track on Monday. I'm probably going to go again tomorrow. I was really slow. I ran a really slow mile and a couple of slow, shorter distances, but just, you know, getting the, the rust off and I'm going to pick it up a little bit, but it felt good just to be outside running, just trying to do all the stuff that is my normal routine, which is nice. Update on the, uh, we had this property in, in Portugal that I talked about a couple of years ago and we, we agreed on a price with the sellers 25 months ago and it took 10 10 months to close the deal because there were six errors. It's a very cheap property, but there's still six errors. They all had to get their piece and they all had to sign off and they live in different parts of the world. And it was a real pain in the ass, but we finally got it done June of 2021 after agreeing on it in August of 2020. And now it's, you know what, late September of 2022. We've gone through like three versions of plans. And then the area that we, got the house, it was supposed to be super easy. Like there's, there's these like historical sites like Sintra, which are like world heritage sites. And it's very hard to get the municipality to sign off on like any kind of plan. And it takes them forever. And that's known. But this place was supposed to be sort of rubber stamp. It was kind of in the middle of nowhere. It was not a very desirable place, certainly not like a ritzy place. But after we bought the property, I don't know if the sellers knew this. It was cheap enough that I don't know. I don't feel like I was scammed, but they like reclassified that area as some sort of natural preserve, which just triggered a whole bunch of other requirements. And then part of the reason why it's taken so long is there was a whole process we needed to go through to avoid getting like the environmental people involved to have to sign off, which could be like another year delay. So we submitted the plans finally, first week of September, 
and the naming of the documents was not according to their convention. So they had to rename all the documents, which means they had to get all the documents re-signed and reprinted, like all these architectural documents for God knows what reason. So they're submitting again this week or next, and then that'll be a few months. And then once that's done, then we have to go to our builder, a guy that uh, worked on a friend of ours' house, and then we have to get him to come up with a budget. Then we have to haggle with him over the budget. Then we got to figure out when he and his crew were available. And at that point, the building starts in earnest. But this is just insane. And I went on a bit of a, a ranty email to the architect. It's not really his fault, but it's kind of like just another month went by because of this naming problem. And I'm like, look, if, if this is not done until Sasha's 15 and my mom is too old to travel to go there and I mean, there's no point, right? Like if it's not done in a reasonable time, if it's done in 2027, it's just not worth it. Who knows if we'll even be living in Portugal. I mean, if this thing, you know, I'm willing to put up another year and a half or two to get this thing done. But like, if it's four years, it's like after we've already spent two years, it's like, why, what's the, what's even the point? I mean, at some point we're all going to be dead. You don't have an infinite amount of time. This bureaucracy here is just crushing. It is crushing. And it makes you realize like, oh, these poor people, they sold us this land for so cheap with all these beautiful trees and all this stuff. But now I see why. Now I see why it doesn't go for more because if you're going to buy ruins and a big piece of property that needs a lot of work and permits, it's going to be an, uh, just an insanely long process. So anybody who has a low time preference like I do, like, hey, I want to use this place. I want to have a place to go, especially if things get weird you know, economically in the world. Um, and I'll get onto that. You know, that's not that's not going to be your out because it's just going to take too long. By that time, it, it'll never get built and, you know, there'll be much bigger problems. So anyway, we'll see. But it's a bit uh, dispiriting to to just these endless delays. Hopefully it gets approved quickly. And hopefully the builder who supposedly like his wife is local to the place, just kind of random and lucky, has a crew that's like rearing to go and they can just like settle on a budget quickly and, and start. Um, and then you've got like supply chain issues and costs and materials and all that shit, but deal with that problem when we get there. Uh, yeah, so I'm back in my routine. Besides the house fiasco, I'm feeling pretty good. But the problem is the macro global economy. So first off, you know, all of a sudden we become very rich because the euro is 97 cents. It was down to 95 cents earlier today on the dollar. Now, what that means is, you know, our rent paid in euros. So when it was 120 a euro, now it's 97 cents for the euro. That's a 23% basically off my rent every month. So, you know, all of a sudden like, oh, look at this, 23% off of meals. Now it's not exactly that. It is for the rent because that's a fixed cost. You know, restaurants and other places are going to have to raise their prices probably due to inflation. But in terms of the fixed stuff where the landlord is kind of trapped in a certain increase she can do every year and she's not very nice, so I don't feel bad for her you know, this is a big savings for us. So, you know, in the short sort of selfish term, it's like, oh, great, look at this. You know, the, the euro is way down. The pound is at 108.8 at this point. It was down to 105 something earlier today and going to London for Christmas. And I remember when the pound was two to one and riding the subway, riding the tube was crazy expensive. It was like eight bucks to get on the tube. And now, you know, it's, it's almost even with the dollar. So things will be cheaper there too. But again, things like restaurants, I think they're probably going to have to raise prices to keep pace. But it is, it is an interesting time. But the problem, obviously, is even if it benefits uh, dollar earners and euro or pound spenders in the short term, what is it going to do for the economy in general? And as you see the euro plummet and plummet to, to levels that you can't believe, and you start to wonder, 
how much longer are people selling goods and services of value going to accept a currency that is cratering and how much longer are they going to accept the promises of the issuers of the euro, the, the European Central Bank, ECB, that, oh, we'll just buy some more bonds and strengthen the euro because it's not backed by anything. You know, it's basically connected to the dollar and the dollar's backed by oil. But I read a really interesting article a while back that, you know, what if Saudi Arabia, which doesn't seem to be that warm with the current administration, decides to partner up with Russia and China and Brazil and say, we're also taking rubles. We're also taking Indian currency for our oil. The whole, the whole thing about the US petrodollar is in the 70s, when Nixon got us off the gold standard and the dollar was suddenly based on nothing, we had massive inflation as a result. They made a deal with the Saudis saying you could only buy oil in dollars. And because of that, everybody needed dollars to get this essential energy source. And then, of course, the dollar had was backed by something, sort of the US military keeping this despotic royal Saudi family in power and in exchange being the only ones that the only currency that they would take for oil. And that was sort of the petrodollar. And it was kind of clever because gold was a solid thing, limited supply to back it. And once they defaulted on that, they needed something. Otherwise, you know, why would you believe that the US was good for it? So now we're sort of backed by the petrodollar. But again, that's just sort of based on the arrangement. Now that arrangement runs deep. I mean, we sort of overlooked a little thing called 9-11 that the Saudis, you know, it was all Saudis that were involved in it. It wasn't you know, Afghanistan or Iraq or some of the other places we invaded. And we sort of looked the other way on that because this is such an important arrangement. Um, and the Saudis probably val obviously value it too. Otherwise they wouldn't keep it going and we give them all these weapons and keep them from maybe being overthrown by their own population. But, you know, if they decided, you know, that the power balance is shifting in the world and China, Russia, Brazil, whatever, India, whoever, collectively are just as strong and can protect them fund them. Then these traders that I was listening to this podcast, I can't remember which it was. It was this, maybe it was the quote, the Raven guy who I think doesn't know shit about you know Bitcoin and a lot of other things, but he was had some trader on who said, it'd be like on a Sunday night, they made an agreement and the market's open and the dollar would lose half its value overnight if it wasn't the sole petrodollar. I'm not saying that's imminently going to happen. I'm not even saying it's ever going to happen. I'm just saying it was an interesting thought experiment that like the thing undergirding the dollar it's just the fact that it's the exclusive currency for oil right now. And you see these other currencies starting to flail, but they're tied to the dollar. And so everything's kind of tied to this arrangement. And, and, and basically, like, there's no such thing really as money unless it's backed by something scarce. And gold was a good money for a long time and ushered in a lot of prosperity, the scarcity of it and the impossibility of just printing more of it. And remember Game of Thrones, uh, Stannis wanted to wage a war to show that he was the true king. And he had to go to the Iron Bank and he had to borrow gold. He couldn't just print money to wage his war. He had to borrow gold because that was a hard currency. And you know, you see that like countries could not wage war if they couldn't print money. But right now they can still print money because it's still tied to sort of these energy monopolies, which comes to the next thing that's going on, which is this oil pipeline, which has uh, been sabotaged, Nord Stream pipeline from Russia to Germany and to Europe has been sabotaged. And they're pretty sure it's sabotage. It, it registered as like a seismic thing in Sweden. And there's all sorts of other evidence. The size of the, the hole in it is like a kilometer wide. It's not something that would just be a small rupture. It points to sabotage and everybody seems to agree. 
And Biden uh, cryptically said in February when asked, you know, what are you going to do about Nord Stream? And he said, oh, that's not going to happen. And then the reporter said, well, but you don't control that territory. And he said, trust me, we'll, we'll make sure that doesn't happen. And one of his top lieutenants, Victoria Newland, also said something to the same effect. So they're saying that the Nord Stream pipeline is not going to happen, the supply of gas from Russia to Europe. And then mysteriously, it gets sabotaged. But it might not be them. I, you know, I think it's kind of like the lab leak. It's like the obvious inference is that it's them, not just because of that, but also because it's in our strategic interest. Like, think about it. We have these allies in Europe who are loyal to us, but if it gets cold, which it will in the winter in Northern Europe, especially, and they don't have enough energy and, and they need it desperately and their population's freezing to death and the economy's grinding to a halt because it's so expensive to, to do anything, they're going to be under a lot of pressure from the population to capitulate to Russia and say, okay, let's end the sanctions. We're not going to sanction you anymore. We're going to part ways with the US here because we need this energy. And that was a huge leverage shift for Russia and a huge weakness of the US's coalition to sanction them. And now that this is bust, um, that that's not even possible unless this could like miraculously be repaired. That really makes it unlikely that Europe will will buckle because the, there's, there's no reason now that Russia lost all its leverage. So it seems unlikely that Russia would do this on purpose. Maybe it's a false flag. So people blame the US, people suggested, but they're still going to try to point blame at whoever and deflect blame and use whatever media propaganda they can. So I don't think it's obvious that people are going to blame the U.S. universally. They might, but I don't know. And Russia could have, if they wanted to shut off gas, they could have, you know, without blowing up their own pipeline. So it makes no sense for Russia to do it. It makes quite a bit of strategic sense for the U.S. to do it. But just because it might make utilitarian, strategic, you know, geopolitical sense doesn't mean it's not evil. I mean, if, if a crucial source of energy is not available to human beings who need it, there's going to be obviously people who die in the winter and all sorts of catastrophic economic consequences and whoever would do stuff like that, you know, to gain geopolitical advantage. I mean, I find that evil, but I guess the way they see it is that they're at war with Russia or a proxy war and everything's fair game in war, but we're not really, we haven't declared war and it's going to not just affect Russia, but mostly affect Europe. Again, it's not been a hundred percent established that the U S did this, but it really feels like the Wuhan lab leak where it's like, look, the viruses they were working on, the gain of function right next door to where the exact viruses they were working on leaked and infected a whole bunch of people, it came from a lab. Unless there's some incredibly persuasive explanation that overcomes the presumption, the obvious inference. And in the lab leak case, that hasn't happened. There's been no demonstration to overcome that presumption. There were some phony articles pitched by the legacy media that were talking about, oh, there were clusters of cases in the wet market, but it doesn't show how they got there. It doesn't show that it didn't leak from the lab to get to the wet market. It doesn't show that it came from the wet market. So they never overcame that presumption. My presumption is 99.9% .9 it leaked from the Wuhan lab. And I think this is similar. My presumption is that this was a US thing for geopolitical strategic purposes. And that, that presumption, I'm not 99.9 because .9 it's only been a couple of days, but you know, let's see if some evidence emerges to overcome that presumption, the obvious inference. I just think, keep it simple. It makes the most sense. And they even had Biden and one of his lieutenants hinting that they would do it. Now, what are the repercussions of that besides people being cold in Europe? Well, I think Germany's not going to shelve one of its nuclear plants as a result. I don't know. I'm not like knowledgeable about any of this stuff. And so I don't want to game on all the effects. There might be some, something I don't even realize that's going to come online and help them 
um, get through it or the winter may be more mild or there's something I don't know about. But it just seems like when you're already having these currency crises, you're already having inflation, you're already having a little bit of Fed raising rates, causing economic problems and having real pressure on these currencies to have like an energy crisis on top of it, a worse energy crisis that can't be, well, we have an energy crisis because of the sanctions and Russia turning off the supply, but it can't now be remedied by Russia turning it back on. That's the, that's the upshot. And so what, what are the repercussions for that? But I guess my biggest takeaway just in the short term is seeing the Euro and the pound just com completely collapse against the dollar. It makes me look around and be like, how much longer are people going to take these currencies? I mean, it's at, you know, 97 cents right now, the Euro, but what if it's at 90 cents? What if it's at 80 cents, 65 cents? I mean, at what point are they like, uh-oh, this thing's just not worth what it purports to be worth. And why do we believe that they can buy some bonds and make it worthwhile again? Where's this money coming from? If the money's not based in energy, based in a hard source, then we're going to start losing faith. And then if we realize, oh, they're just going to have to print more of this to cover the economic recession they've driven us into by... So if they're going to strengthen the currency, right, they've got to raise rates. But if they raise rates and the currency gets stronger, it's going to have economic repercussions because there's a lot of debt. So when they raise rates, debt becomes more expensive. Money becomes more expensive. Uh, people with debt start to default. And people can't run their operations. Couple that with higher energy costs. And you've got huge, huge problems. And as you have recessions, then how do you mitigate the recession? Well, they have to print more money. And then, the, and then they have to lower rates, make money cheaper, make it more easy to run a business, uh, make the debt cheaper to service. But when that happens, um, then you have inflation. Then you have people questioning, well, how exactly did they make money cheaper? What did they do? Did they produce more energy out of the ground? Did they produce better technology? What's going on here? Is there more productivity per person because of the increase in technology? Is, it, is food just much more easy? to deliver and, and grow and our goods and services more easily produced? No, they're still hard to produce, but they just made produce more cash. They've just lowered rates and basically infused the economy with cash. Well, now I better go take this cash while it still has value and buy whatever goods and services I need for the foreseeable future. Well, so there's like the real physical aspect to inflation where it's like, there's too much money chasing too few goods, just sort of like the math equation. And that's one aspect. But then there's the psychological aspect, which is, holy shit, there's too much money chasing too few goods. And everyone's starting to realize that. And I'm realizing it now. And my neighbor's going to realize it. So I better run to the grocery store and get everything I can right now. Well, when everyone starts thinking that, then you have the psychological component, which then exacerbates it because now we're trying to get rid of the cash and get goods, which all it does is a huge uh, immediate demand for goods, which makes the prices surge even more and inflation skyrockets. So I'm, I'm actually like, I go to a restaurant and I see people you know, nice. We had this waitress the other night at this restaurant. It was a great restaurant, this Georgian restaurant. And she was excellent. And I'm thinking, God, I feel bad that you're taking euros for this job, that we're paying you euros for this excellent meal. I feel like we're ripping you off. This is fake money that can be printed. And you're devoting your time and attention and doing an excellent job and being attentive to what we want. And this sucks. Like you're getting ripped off here. You know, I didn't say that, but I was thinking it. And I look at all the people working, you know, for a wage. And I think this is, this money's not worth what they what it purports to be worth and it's and it is theft um, from these people and at what point do they realize it and say fuck this like i'm not doing this and that you know that's another crisis right i mean you go to the coffee shop and there's someone making and serving the coffee then you go to a restaurant and there's somebody cooking the food and bringing it to your table and 
And it's this pleasant thing that we have in modern society where if you want a meal, you can go out and get it. If you want a coffee, you can get it. If you need groceries, you go to the store. But there's human beings being paid to do all that work. And the second that they lose faith, this is a massive problem. And then you think, okay, well, what happens then? You know, what happens when the currency dies, when nobody gives a shit about the euro? Well, there's going to be chaos. There's going to be lawlessness, right? And then you have a situation where it's like, well, I guess the police will have to step in and like break it up. But who's going to pay the police? With what? What are they going to pay the police in fuel, in food? If they don't have a currency that isn't collapsing, how are they going to pay the police? How are they going to pay the sanitation people to pick up the garbage? I mean, this is a real problem if the currency collapses. So you can be like, oh, great. I get paid in dollars spent in euros. Look how good this is for me. But this is not good, right? It's not good if it collapses. Now, we're not at imminent collapse. I'm not trying to argue that. But directionally, where the energy is scarce and the money is plentiful, that's where, that's where this is headed. This is why Bitcoin exists. It's a currency that you can rely on that's not going to be increased. So, so this money that you take you know, electronically is money that you know is what it's worth, is, is what the supply is. So it, it makes for a much better money. And I think, you know, we're starting to see little pockets of, oh, maybe I would rather have my money in something that is scarce rather than printable at a whim, fiat currency. We're starting to see, we're going to get this tested, like what fiat really is. Now, can they stabilize it? Can they, can they control it for a little bit longer? Maybe they can. Maybe they control it for 10 more years. I don't know. I, don't, I can't time this. But it seems like with the energy crisis and these currencies being so volatile, it doesn't feel like it's going to last that long. It feels like we're getting to a point almost where raw materials like energy and food are going to be more valuable than paper printable money. And more people are becoming aware of this. And again, there's the psychological aspect, which is kind of dangerous. And, and we'll see what happens. But it got me thinking about a couple of things. One of them was, uh, I want to spend less time on Twitter, partly because I feel like it interferes with my creative process. It's too addictive. You, you, there's news all the time. There's currency crashes. There's Bitcoin news. There's political news. And you just are just, give me more, give me more. I, I want to know what's happening. I mean, my follows are very good and it's very compelling. You know, a lot of the stuff that I'm reading and I learn a lot, but at the same time is you need to, you know, it's kind of fast a bit, you know, your information diet can't be 24 seven. You need to take a break. So I'm just doing eight to 10 in the morning, eight to 10 at night. And, you know, often during those times I'm, you know, playing with Sasha or eating dinner or something. So I don't get four hours. I probably get hour and 15 minutes in the morning and 45 minutes at night. And, and that's enough. I mean, that's enough to respond and post. And so I started thinking, okay, well, the problem though, is I have thoughts and ideas that come in 180 characters or whatever the new limit is now on Twitter, because this, this app, which and I'll get into the problems with the app, which are well known. It, it's kind of trained me to think in, you know, a couple sentence thoughts. And sometimes I find my couple sentence thoughts compelling. I think, oh, this is an interesting thing. I want to post this, but it may be off my Twitter hour. So what do I do? I could just take a note on it. And then also I, I feel like I've been censoring myself a little bit on Twitter because not because, you know, obviously you know that I've posted all sorts of shit that people have called me a conspiracy theorist or a right winger or whatever. They've insulted me in all, all kinds of ways. And I did it. And so I'm not really scared of that. And most of those people have gone away anyway, but it was also a more urgent time, right? They were literally mandating people getting ejected. So I felt like I had to speak up. They were locking you in your house. I felt like it was more urgent because um, the psychosis was really acute. Now it's just sort of chronic. It's not acute as much anymore. So there's a little less urgency, but I feel like, oh, I'm running the sports side and a lot of people follow me for sports and I've just promoted three posts that I've done on sports. And do I really want to 
put a controversial post up right now and deflect the attention of that. Or, you know, I've, I've just put four sports posts up. Do I want to put 10 thoughts up in a row? And I've put 14 tweets out in an hour. And, you know, people are like, okay, I'm a little sick of this guy's same voice in my feed. I've got to follow a lot of other people. So all these things, which, you know, or maybe I'm just self-censoring. I mean, all this is, or maybe this is what self-censoring actually is, is caring what the people think. I mean, it's just my feed. You can follow or not, but maybe I care too much. Oh, people are going to unfollow and whatever. But regardless of, of what the truth is about that, I don't want to censor. I want to express myself. Um, and then the other thing, obviously, is that Twitter is not that hospitable. It's, it censors people and can, uh, I've been shadow banned. I've checked the shadow ban things and, you know, my replies don't show up or, uh, you know, I've been shadow banned in a few ways over the years. And so I just felt like, you know, I'm going to, on my own site, just put a feed of tweet type thoughts that I can post any day and just link to it on Twitter. And so I'm doing that. So if you go to uh, chrislist.com, there's a tab called uncensored tweets. And literally I'm posting like five a day uh, and, I, and I'll probably link to it and retweet a couple of them, but it feels good. I just post whatever I want. I can post a hundred um, and people are free to check or not check if they want. I don't feel like I'm spamming people's feeds with it. It's just, these are my thoughts. This is what I want to record. I don't want to lose. I feel like it's important if you have like an inspiration, something you think is interesting to, to write it down quickly because you'll forget about it and never go back to it. And maybe it is something interesting. Maybe it is something worthwhile. So I've been doing that. But then I started having a more radical thought because I was like, well, Twitter, obviously it's, it's ideologically driven. It's not some public square where, you know, all views are welcome. And you could see that because they'll deplatform some doctor who says the mRNA vaccines aren't safe, even though a lot of the claims he made are completely true and shown to be true a year later, but they'll leave up tweets by Rachel Maddow saying they're hundred percent effective against the spread, which has been completely shown to be false. So they're not really interested in di disinformation. They're interested in ideology. They're interested in putting forth the view of the powerful of the people you know, behind the vaccine push, the people mostly the Democratic Party, but I think it's bigger than the Democratic Party. I think it's just sort of a globalist, neoliberal ideology that th that's what Twitter is about. And it's obvious they've done a bad job. They've done a bad job with spam. It's just kind of a shitty company. And I even feel like engagement's a bit down. I think like there's too many bots. There's too much. It's just, it's, it's a little bit falling apart. So I, I got a lot out of it. I, I've got some great people I've engaged with on Twitter. It's been, I really appreciate a lot of the people. I've blocked and gotten rid of just a lot of the sophists and the uh, bullshit artists. I um, mean, I've connected with a lot of good people, so I, I really value it. But I've, I think I've mined most of what I'm going to mine from it. I don't think like, I think 90% of the people who are ever going to uh, connect with me have connected with me already. It's basically diminishing returns. And I was thinking, you know, and also I just don't think I should be supporting a site that does this, even though obviously it, my Twitter feed has what, 17,000 something people. And a lot of them are engaged with me a lot and it's got some promotional value. It's probably worth like 50 grand, you know, if you were to put a price on it. But I was thinking of just deleting it altogether and not just because of that, partly because Twitter's kind of a shit company and it's that Kantian act only on that maxim you would will to be a universal law. I think everybody should say fuck you to Twitter and figure out something else. And, and if I think everybody should, then I should. And I can just be the, you know, not the first. Second, I, I love the idea of quitting before I get fired. You know, just, I'm going to quit Twitter. You know, I, you, you can't, can't fire me. I quit. You know, I'll resign. I don't, I'm not going to stick around for this bullshit. And then two, if I say, okay, well, I'm going to quit in a month. I'm not committing to this yet, by the way, but it's just an idea I had, but I might do it. 
say November 1st or something, A, I could tweet scorched earth. You know, I don't care if, you know, they, and B, I could just like keep uh, promoting ways to get in touch with me on Substack and on my site. And it would be actually kind of a clever promotional thing where I would just extract anyone who's interested. Because look, if, if you have a Substack and I like your insights, but you keep posting them on Twitter, I may not actually uh, get around to giving you my email and registering, not because I have any problem with it, just because I'm on Twitter, I follow you and you post all the stuff on Twitter so I can read it there. So why register? I don't, I don't need to register. But if all of a sudden you're like, look, I'm disappearing, you can either register for the Substack or just not see my stuff. I may be like, shit, I want to keep a connection here. I'll, I'll register. So in a way it is a marketing thing, but it's also sincere. It's like, A, I don't believe in what they're doing. B, to the extent that people enjoy my stuff, I can just extract every single person over the course of a month. I just post two or three times a day that this is what I'm doing and give it a month. And anybody who uh, is interested will, will, will do it. Anyone who's not interested won't and they weren't going to do it anyway. So I basically you know, got all the marketing out of that, you know, all the current marketing out of that handle that I could. And then the bigger question though, this is the, the real kind of reason. This is the, sort of the bigger one. Uh, one is principled and one is practical. The practical one is, let's say there is an economic crisis that's a little bit bigger than people expect. The, uh, the energy crisis plus currency devaluation, basically too much debt in the system and they have to raise rates to stave off inflation and then the economy start breaking. So they lower rates and inflation goes out of control and we have a real severe crisis. As I said, like there's going to be some lawlessness. You can't pay the police. You can't pay the military. You can't even pay the garbage collectors. I mean, there's going to be some chaos. And if there's chaos, I'm thinking like a criminal. What would I do, you know, if there's chaos? Well, I mean, you obviously you could break into cars, you know, rob people. And you see that happen in the US. You know, Jeff Erickson just got his car broken. It's horrible. He took his computers, his clothes, all his stuff, his family stuff. It's terrible. But I think there's more desperation. There's going to be more of that. But that's, you know, petty criminals. I, I think, you know, those are people on drugs. But I'm talking about like organized crime. What would I do? Well, I would probably, there's tons of information, personal information out there about people. You know, the Equifax hack had hundreds of millions of people. The Target hack. There's so many credit card companies have been hacked. There's going to be government databases, DMVs, the security in those places is shit. There's basically your name, address, tons of information about you is, is available. And people are mostly worried about, you know, identity theft. Like, oh, I'm going to go take out a credit card in your name and run up some charges and you're going to have to deal with that. And that sucks. But I'm thinking like if Bitcoin moons because they realize the shakiness of these other currencies and there's really one safe haven that isn't, you know, isn't infinitely uh, printable, and this thing goes up to 50, 100, 200, 500,000 a coin. If you're an organized criminal, you're going to be like, all right, let's just like build an algorithm that mines Twitter for people who talk about the subject. And let's cross reference it with our information from all these database hacks. And let's go find who's near us who and check out his routine, right? Because we, we see him on Twitter. We see the restaurant pictures he posts, the people he hangs out with, the things he talks about walking his dog, walking the type of dog that he walks. This is pretty easy. There's pictures of people, media. I mean, this is not like, you know, you may think this is paranoid, but like, to me, like, I'm just like, look, if shit breaks down and I'm a criminal, this is the shit I'm going to look to. There's a lot of smart criminals. They could easily mine these social media sites for tons of information about people, cross-reference them with the personal information that is, you know, that you wouldn't divulge on a social media site from hacks and then be like, okay, we know where this guy lives. We know where he walks around. And then if they know, okay, this is a Bitcoin or this is the guy who talks about buying uh, 
collectibles or baseball cards or whatever the hell you're talking about. You know, you send someone to his house and you hit him over the head until he coughs up his keys or he coughs up the you know, collection of cards or whatever it is that's valuable. And to, to me, like, okay, maybe, you know, the chances that it's one, you know, it's not, I'm not going to be the first person that happens to, but this could happen. And, and barring that, you know, it's also kind of a treasure trove for bad actors in governments. If, you know, a law and order faction arises and, you know, what happened in Germany after Weimar, when the currency collapsed, uh, you had this hardcore political movement come up and they were, ended up being the Nazis, right? So there's movements like that that come up and, you know, you just don't want um, this treasure trove of information about yourself so easily mined. Now, I actually care least about the posts I made. I feel very good when I look back and think like, what, did, what was I saying about the vaccine? What was I saying about the lockdowns? What was I saying about all the shit? I feel good. You know, I've seen people I've interacted with, people trying to bust me or get clout. And I, I looked at some old tweets and they've deleted their tweets. They've deleted their half of it. Uh, but I look at my half and I'm like, yeah, I still agree with that. I would say the same thing. I would defend this to this day. And so, you know, I feel good. And I actually would be sad to delete those and wipe out my account, but it might be for the best. I'm not, I, and again, I believe in free speech and, and fuck the government, you know, if they're going to come and say, I can't say this, or, oh, you said something bad about the vaccine, if it's totally true. But it's more just, for me, it's criminals, right? It's like, what, how many things have I talked about? How much have I identified about my personal life that becomes a liability? You know, the social media, it's not, you know, what it purported to be initially. It's not just kind of chit-chatting amongst friends and people and it is that, or was that, but it's also just this massive treasure trove for advertisers, criminals, governments, whoever. And so I was thinking it would just be like killing a lot of birds with one stone to mine the shit about it for a month, announce that I'm deleting it, go scorch earth on my tweets, just tweet about whatever the fuck I want without regard to being uh, canceled or whatever. Uh, not that I think too much, but again, and then also delete this giant liability. Now they people say, well, come on, the Twitter never deletes it. They, they have it. They could turn that over to the government if, if they were, someone was trying to nail you for something. Sure, there's no doubt about that. Also, this podcast, I've said a lot of shit. Like people could you know, get some software that gets transcripts of podcasts and try that. Totally possible. But I'm just saying, don't make it easy for them. That, that's my thing. It's like, if the government wants to fuck you over, they're going to fuck you over. But just don't make it easy. If somebody's powerful is really trying to get you, they're going to get you, but make it hard. Don't make, don't get caught up in the easy algorithmic Twitter sweep that they could make uh, simply and just mine a whole lot of data. So that, that's how I feel about just, you know, OPSEC. It's like, don't try to be perfect. You're, you're not going to deal with the inconvenience of every single thing you would have to do to be perfect, to be completely anonymous online, to be completely, you know, have your apartment rented another name. I mean, maybe at some point that becomes necessary, but just don't make it easy. Just don't be the first one to, don't be the low hanging fruit because that's what they're going to go for, right? The, the lion could kill any of the gazelles, but it's going to get the sick gazelle. I mean, that's who it's going to go for. It's going to go for the gazelle that can't protect itself. So just don't be the low hanging fruit. And to me, this is going to be relatively low hanging fruit. Just being like, hey, here I am with my real identity on Twitter, talking all the shit about my life, talking about my interests, the things that I believe are valuable. Again, the podcast could be one too, but I think that that's uh, a little bit more involved and not the no-brainer that the social media sites are, not just Twitter, obviously Facebook, Instagram, all that shit. So it's just something that I've been thinking about. I'm not committed to it yet, but I'm close. I'm, I'm weighing it. I'd say it's like 50-50 that I do it. And, and again, the only reason why I'm not just like, yeah, fuck it, I'm going to do this because it seems like a great idea right now 
is that I think it's worth like 50 grand. And the fact that I have these, uh, these followers, you know, that, that I can keep communicating with, and I would obviously lose those and only, only a small percentage would migrate over to Substack. So anyway, I think that's going to be it for now. It's going to be a short one. I'm probably going to do a sports podcast on Real Man Sports. If you're interested in my uh, uncensored tweets, go to chrislist.com and look at the tab of uncensored tweets. I'll also, uh, while I'm still on Twitter, link to it and retweet it if you're interested. The other thing is uh, I appreciate people uh, having nice comments, both on uh, the Real Man Wood comments, on the podcast comments, and also the Real Man Sports. I read those and I, I appreciate it. And keep them coming if you enjoy the podcast. I, I like that. And spread the word. I think like, especially if I get rid of Twitter, I think just organic people telling each other, I get a couple emails now and then people are like, oh, I played this for my wife. Play it for your wife. That's another person can be related to you. You know, most people's wives will be like, no, I'll get a divorce if I play this for my wife. But yeah, I, I appreciate that as well. All right. That's going to do it till next time.